I want everyone to make the ocean their playground, their respectful playground, because I think those interactions with seeing the organisms will make you a more conscientious consumer of marine resources. Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Salome Buglis, a marine ecologist at the Charles Darwin Foundation and a PhD candidate in geography at the University of British Columbia. She previously completed her BSc in geography at University College London and her MSc also in geography at UBC. In addition to being a National Geographic Explorer, Salome is a proud member of Black Women in Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Science, an NGO that aims to create supportive spaces for Black women in her field. I'm super excited to kick off the new year with a lovely conversation with Salome about her upbringing and her journey to present day, but let's start from the very beginning. Salome, what's your story? My story is that I'm a marine ecologist mm -hmm. so, uh, dedicated to studying deep water ecosystems, and I am very lucky to be doing this in the Galapagos, these isolated islands that just have spectacular marine biology, and it's got this unique biodiversity and so much abundance of life as well. So I just feel very lucky to have been able to kick off a marine ecology um, career in this space yeah. and to be honest if I never imagined that I would be a marine ecologist a scientist or a researcher it's just it's a bit crazy to now be having a little bit of an interview and discussion about um, myself as a researcher scientist because it's just not what I ever envisioned for myself and that's because I mean I'm a geographer <laughs> I started in geography and not in marine biology so I'm one of those marine ecologists or marine biologists that every now and then people ask me something about the marine world and I'm just like yeah <laughs> let's, let's quickly google that because <laughs> um, I've kind of like been, been learning as a grad student about the marine world um, and yeah as I said earlier I never thought I would be a scientist it's partly also because I was never really good in school <laughs> or never felt like I was very good in school. I was never academically inclined. Mm -hmm. And and there are many reasons for this in, in my life journey. One of them is my family and I moved around a lot. I was born in Germany and then I moved to Spain, Ecuador, Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. back to England and then Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah. So I changed school more than 10 times and languages more than three times. And so every time in school, I had to kind of like catch up when I was starting in a new language and also adjust to my new environment. Mm -hmm. And I learned later as an adult that I was dyslexic, but that kind of explains why as a kid, I never enjoyed school. I just found mm -hmm. reading and writing very challenging. Mm -hmm. And if you had asked me at between seven and 10, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said either hairdresser or a seamstress 
A, their major pros, which is I can make my own clothes <laughs> and make a living. I don't have to read and write a lot. Or I would learn how to style my hair. And at the time, I was uh, definitely one of those mixed-race brown kids who had lots of really, I have really kinky hair and I just fought against my hair so much. I always wanted to have straight hair. So I thought if I'm a hairdresser, I've got, I can get free hair straightening. <laughs> so, uh, and for, for a while, I always thought those were excellent career choices, which they are. Um, yes, they are. But they were, they were kind of what I thought would be easier for me because I just did not enjoy reading and writing. Um, luckily my parents were, for good or for bad, uh, they were very adamant about and worried that I just didn't read a lot or I, I didn't enjoy like reading. I never read books as a kid and I tried to dodge as much homework as I could. Um, needless to say that by the time I did high school, I actually failed my first year in high school and I had to start again. So yeah, not <laughs> never really thought I would be like an academic. How did that feel though? Like the the, the moment of realizing that you know, things might not work out academically. How did you deal with that? You know, I I think about this my, with my parents. I talk about this a lot because they uh, we've talked about this several time cause, times because I know it happened and I have memories of it happening, but I can't even remember the state of mind that I was in because I must have been so determined. But in my vague memory, I have I remember the the teacher who liked me a lot was just mm-hmm. like Salvi think you're great and we think that you have potential to do better but you've unfortunately you've got um marks that are kind of they weren't failures but they were marks that aren't good enough for university and they kind and they because they liked me they suggested I repeat the year and they thought that in a year I would catch up and I think honestly it was having those teachers was great those teachers made that difference, right? Instead of making me feel like I'm doing badly, they just made me feel like I can do this. I just need a little bit more time. And I worked my butt off and I got good grades and I got into UCL, yeah. um, which was great and also really, really hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so I, I applied for geography and geography was the subject that I just really liked because that was the only subject during my high school in which... It just came natural, like it was learning about the world, about different countries, about countries' different social and economical contexts and how they manage their environment and the different natural environments in these spaces. And I felt like because I had moved so much throughout my life between Europe and Latin America and the Caribbean, I had seen the tropic versus the north or the higher latitudes and been in these different countries from developing to less economically developed so I kind of felt like geography was a little bit of all the life experience I had but I quickly learned at UCL that going so UCL for those who may not know the British university system is one of these it's probably like the where all the Oxford and Cambridge rejects go (laughs) and I was very proud to have gotten in Hmm. And then when I got there, I was just like, "Uh uh-oh. And that's when um, I got in touch with the not belonging inferiority complex. That part of me started to grow that kind of Mm -hmm. like very, very, a lot of insecurity, a lot of um, not belonging. And um, undergrad was 
was a tough place. That's where like a lot of anxiety started and maybe even depression. If maybe I'm not sure I didn't really th think about it that much, but I felt like that I was continuously just like trying to, I was heavily paddling and swimming to like stay above and like, yeah, because I was surrounded with people who were just A-star students all of their life. Also, UCL at the time has 40% kids who came from private schools. So not only was I like going from someone who wasn't much of a nerd or a study kid to being in a place where everyone has been trained to like succeed at this university. So I was completely out of my depth. <laughs> and um yeah, I got really lost there in terms of like the ex the confident extroverted self in me kind of like got overshadowed by a very insecure but I don't know, this insecurity of not belonging and not being good enough and always trying to having to prove that I I can be at UCL. Like <laughs> mm -hmm. um and also I studied geography, which only it took me a long time to realize is what I could I don't know, the name for it is maybe luxury subject <laughs> mm -hmm. at university. And that ma ma made it a very white subject. So I was one of two more minorities or or let's say black, someone who's like of Afro descending. Mm -hmm. And it was also the part time of my life where I was having like an identity crisis a little bit. I remember there being um Afro-Caribbean society. Mm -hmm. And they, I remember like walking around the day where you get to meet all the societies and they were just like, hey, where are you from? You should join the society. And, and I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was in that space where I really wanted to be validated by white people and I wanted to have white friends. And mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. and I think it was from being raised in Latin America, which is a space where uh, proximity to whiteness is proximity to success mm -hmm. and comfort and betterment. And some context about where I'm from. My mom is Trinidadian Venezuelan. My dad is uh, English and German. So mm -hmm. he's white and my mom's uh, my mom, I would say, ethnically is black and Indian. Mm -hmm. And um, even in my own family, my Afro-Venezuelan granddad would do this thing what happens across all Latin America, which mm -hmm. is improving your race. Yeah, mejorando la raza. Me mejorando <laughs> la raza. So in that, within that context, I was one of these messed up I, undergrads who was out of her depths, just trying to keep up academically with all the work. Uh, surrounded by high performing privileged kids and then um i was trying really hard also to be to be accepted into that group and probably neglected myself from being able to share, have a community that would support me but it's a reality of something that i've had to explore during black lives matter and yeah. putting a mirror in front of myself we can compare that with the the association that you're now a, a proud member of, though. So yes. it, it shows your own growth in time, you know, early on as an undergrad, feeling like you needed to be friends with a different, a different group of people to feel like you were one of them, closer to that, mm -hmm. better off, mm -hmm. likely to succeed. But you can get all of those things amongst Black women, too. So I'd love to hear the story of Black women in ecology, evolution, and marine science, if you don't mind sharing that. Because that is quite the transformation. So Weems was born out of um, a time of the pandemic in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, this is now, I think, July. But as you know, during 
I think June kicked off this whole Black Lives Matter movement uh, online, at least, because that's where we all were in front of our laptops. And there was so much information. And I was obviously sucked into it as someone who is Afro-descending. I'm like, oh, this is about me or something about me. So let me read more. And I'm reading and I'm consuming more. And I'm learning more about all these conversations about race and how this makes us feel seeing black people murdered for being black mm -hmm. and and just it it created a lot of sadness a lot of um a lot of learning because just because you're black it doesn't mean or you have black blood it doesn't mean you know about afro caribbean or afro-american studies right you're not an expert in ethnicity <laughs> just because you're ethnic so for me this was like having all this bite-sized information about Uh, how black people feel and how white people feel and and about that was just an amazing opportunity for someone who is partly black mm -hmm. but hasn't been immersed because I've mostly lived in a white world or in a Latino black rejecting world mm -hmm. um, then I've never had the chance to have this information and and it's not something that we unpacked as a family so a lot of feelings a lot of tears um, just so many emotions and then On top of that, I was getting so many requests suddenly um, to give talks, to share my point of view amongst the marine research community, right? I was bump and, and I'm a natural explorer, and even National Geographic was like, hey, Sal, we want to celebrate you today. Can we do a story about you? Or like your other professors from other universities, like, hey, do you want to give a talk to our class? Do you want, like, obviously an online talk? And mm -hmm. In the beginning, I was just like, wow, someone cares about my, about me, or like someone thinks my science is good, <laughs> or someone. So, um, and for a minute, it's, for a minute, it was kind of like a mixture of validating or feeling like it's, it's important that I talk about this because I realized I didn't have what I, what I can offer, which is I, I never saw any black women doing marine research, is probably partly also why I never thought I would be a, marine scientist or a scientist because if you don't see anyone like yourself then how can you imagine yourself in that position so and I thought okay it's good that I'm I can give these talks because then it it would be good for undergrads especially any other black or brown women out there to see me doing a PhD in this strange field that is usually led by white men But after a month or two months of this, I was just exhausted from these requests and then I saw a post out there by one of our members saying like uh, isn't it interesting that people are recognizing how bad slavery was but now they're expecting us to give do more free labor by giving free talks and and kind of like do their uh, fill the gap that they have been not addressing which is ensuring that there's representation ensuring that all types of voices are being amplified within this field And then we're asking to do more free labor at an emotional time. <laughs> it was a bit of a double whammy. So Nikki Taylor Knowles, who's our founder of Breams, who's um, a legend, and <laughs> yes. uh, she um, she put out this call as asking, "Are there any Black marine scientists out there feeling overwhelmed? <laughs> uh, put your name on this uh, sheet, on this Google sheet, mm -hmm. and let's get together and chat." And um, that first Zoom congregation that we had was just amazing because mm -hmm. I had never actually been surrounded by other academic black women I, I've always been I mean in geography I've always been it's been a, a lonely place in that regard and it's something that I'd never even thought about mm -hmm. until 
I just felt like it was normal that this is just my life, right? My life is just, I'm mixed race Salome who is in a white world and I'm part of it. <laughs> That's just how it is. <laughs> and I, and it was just so great to, uh, talk to other, so many other women and, and we're women because as we know, we have a different experiences than men as well. So yeah. it was really important to, for it to, to be women and then of color. Um, and it was just so nice to hear that other people had shared similar experiences and just to discuss these things that before you were just internalizing, sometimes you're ignoring, sometimes you worry about it and then you, you decide not to think about it too much. And it was just amazing to like know that other people share these realities mm-hmm. and then hashing out different reactions, what is helpful, what isn't helpful and getting advice. And one of the great things that came out of that was just like, do not do any free labor. <laughs> and, and, um, and that was liberating. And we even went as far as we have, we have our Slack channel. We have our website now, but we have this, the Slack channel is great. Any kind of like the slightest, I don't know, thing that it might be distressing you that we think is like maybe related to race or something like that. You type it there and, there's always a sister who is answering like this because there's like over 200 of us now. And I'm, I can't always be there, but I see any, anytime I see something pop up in the Slack, I quickly look. And if I think I can have any advice, I'm also there like typing, typing. And it's just been great to have that kind of network of women who understand. And, um, and there's other Afro Latinas on there too. And, you know, we, we might all share that melanin gene, but and different parts of the world that has a different context. Definitely white supremacy is still within the system in most of these spaces of the communities that, of the different communities that our members are from. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely uh, shared experiences that we can, that are valuable for each other to share. And I feel like if I graduate and I don't know what I'm doing next and I need a job, if I type there any jobs out there, ladies, <laughs> they, they've got me sorted. I've, I've even had, had two of them message, ask me if I'm ready to, to consider positions. And I'm like, still trying to finish. <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's just great to have a network like mm-hmm. this. And I think we all genuinely really care and yeah. Yeah. Well, before we we talk about the ocean, because I know that's a a topic that also gets you quite, you know, excited. And I can't wait to hear more about the work that you do. I do want to touch upon one thing that you mentioned about the conversations that you didn't have with your parents growing up. Since 2020, have you started to have more of those conversations about how you felt in undergrad or even before that when you were living in the DR or or living in Germany to have those conversations come up and how have those conversations been, if so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been like spontaneous and they've been more like mini eruptions because I don't live with my parents now when I do see them. There are moments where I'm just like, I'm, I'm canceling my dad constantly. <laughs> but I, so I saw my parents in the, in 2020, December mm-hmm. after Black Lives Matter after being part of Weems and I wanted answers as to yeah. why we never spoke about this and and I my mom was just a little bit in shock. Uh, my my mom who's who's the who's the black one in my family, <laughs> she was just kind of speechless. Like uh, and I realized how I guess just like me they even though they were trying to they were they're good people and they were and I think they did their best. 
these were just conversations and topics that wasn't at their fingertips to kind of share with me. And, and that's something I realized. So we're taking it a step at a time, but I think they are as woke as they can be for their age. And, and, and not, and they are so willing to keep on learning. And they, when I, when I ask them about, or I tell them how certain things are no longer like something we should say or or do or we need to change our perspective on something. I just love that they are so willing to like take it in and relearn and and be flexible. Mm-hmm. But and yeah, there's there was a lot to be unpacked from um for example, my sister is much more darker skinned than I am and mm-hmm. we have a completely different experience of the world. And these were things that we never spoke about because you're just living life. And now I, I just, I have so many moments of remembering things that I feel like with the information I had now, I think we could have dealt with many things differently. Mm-hmm. And especially for, for me, cause I was, def- I definitely had a lot of, I had a lot more privilege just mm-hmm. by being a little more light skinned in, in Dominican Republic which is where we were teenagers mm-hmm. so okay how old is your sister is she older or younger than you she's older than i am she's three years older and she's uh she lives in the uk she's married to a kenyan mm-hmm. and um she lives uh, she was living in kenya but now lives in england and just as an example mm-hmm. i think she never uh, was that interested in moving back to latin america because mm-hmm. or the caribbean latin america because it it was a place and space that very, when we were teenagers, it was easy to feel how you were just treated better the lighter you were in skin color. And yeah, I, I think she just felt a lot better in England. And it's crazy to think that the uh, historical colonial enslaver country that bears so much responsibility and needs to give so many apologies is mm-hmm. one of the places where she felt uh, definitely more comfortable validate valued and maybe you can have a part two and have a talk with her and i think she would be a great person to talk to she is about to start her postdoc uh in england after being a stay-at-home mom and full-time full-time mom house renovation (laughs) she's been very busy but for six years and she has three beautiful uh kids and um she's finding her way back into academia and and me and her haven't had a proper chance to really talk about unpacking so many experiences but i i definitely it would be interesting i'm i'm myself curious to see how she feels about many of these things (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to give you a chance to talk about what the ocean means to you before we talk about the work that you do within the context of the ocean so we can talk about it that in relation to your identity or we can talk about it as a a standalone what does the ocean mean to you the ocean means the world to me Mm. (laughs) Uh, we are on a blue planet it is we are on a blue planet so the ocean means the world to me in every sense and form Mm. uh it's it's uh it's my playground it's also my job and it is a world that we know so little about, so it just gets me very excited. And um, my research is focused on deep water ecosystems, mm-hmm. so I also get to 
be part of this new scientific revolution that we now are able to study deeper parts of the ocean as technology is getting is be getting better. So I'm part of this new community of scientists who get to be pioneers again in a place that we know so little about, which is the deep sea. And I love it because I get to be an explorer and, <laughs> and um, in, in the best sense, not in colonizing <laughs> others and, and, uh, and claiming to be discovering things that other people knew about, but in a, in a, in a sense of just getting to shine a light into places that humans have never gotten to see mm -hmm. and getting, bringing this information to the surface and sharing it, which, um, I, it feels like a, a, a privilege to be able to do this. So, I use um, affordable ROVs to explore shallow seamounts. So those are the seamounts that are underwater mountains. We should say what ROVs are. Oh, yeah. ROVs are remotely operated vehicles. Yes. <laughs> But as essentially, they're a, like a drone, an underwater drone with a long cable because GPS doesn't work underwater. So you can't actually remote control on a distance like a drone. Yeah. So you have to have a cable. And your cable has to be as long as the depth that you want to go down to times two. So if you want to go to 100 meters, you need like a 200 or three right. meter long cable. And that's yeah. because we have the thing called currents, <laughs> which is my biggest enemy. <laughs> um, so I propose to uh, explore these shallow seamounts. And by shallow, I mean those that are not so deep. So within like the first 100, 200 meters. And that's what we call the mesophotic zone or the twilight zone, where after 40 meters, we lose almost all light except for the blue and green light. And then blue and green light can penetrate almost as deep as 100, 150 meters. It kind of depends where you are on the earth and how transparent your water is. Mm -hmm. And this is a zone where we still have light influencing the productivity of our marine ecosystems. So that's why after 200, when it gets pitch black, you have a different dynamic because light and photosynthesis and primary production is out of is out of the deal. Mm -hmm. And I was interested specifically in these shallow seamounts because these shallow seamounts are key fishing sites in Galapagos for the artisanal fishing fleet. Okay. And it's what we call offshore fishing sites. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why they're fishing in these offshore locations is because there's a seamount and seamounts create habitats and different dynamics. So there's, so I, I really wanted to know, so, okay, so we're getting important fish resources here and we don't know anything about the habitats. And it was nerve wracking. I was terrified. Um, and it didn't work half of the time. The currents was, were just too harsh on the ROV or we didn't find any seamounts at all where the GPS coordinates were. But on the last day, we lowered the ROV and we hit the summit. So the summit of the seamount and When we got there, I'm looking at the footage. So while you are driving the, you're driving the ROV like on from a laptop and you can see in, in real time what the ROV is seeing through a camera. Mm. Um, and suddenly we're seeing these green long things. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And I thought it was like maybe a big coral. And I was aiming, I was hoping to find some coral gardens. And I'm like, whoa, these are the weirdest looking corals. And as we get closer, I realized that this is just some massive, seaweed mm -hmm. and i remember telling the the pilot drivers of the rov i'm just like oh my god is that is that kale 
And they're like, kale salad. And, and, and I'm like, and they're like, do you mean kelp? And I'm like, yes, I think that's kelp. And I was just like, what the hell is kelp doing here? Cause kelp is a cold water species that you typically find off the coast of Halifax or BC oh. or the poles. They're like, yeah. just like penguins and polar bears. They do not belong in the tropics, <laughs> but Galapagos is this special place that has upwelling of cold water and the Humboldt current comes there too, which is why we have penguins in Galapagos. We have sea lions and we have this incredible biomass. And then when I found this kelp forest, that's when the scientist in me was born. I was just, I just had so many questions. I was like, what is this kelp doing here? How is it so deep? How is it operating at depth with such little light? How is it so big? Who else is living here? Is this the new species? Wait, is that likely to be the case? Could this be a, a whole new species of kelp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just published the paper on the first characterization of this kelp forest, oh. and we think it might be a new species to science. But we we still have to confirm a few more things. Okay. And um, and that's when I think the academic in me was born from from a genuine set place of just curiosity mm-hmm. and just wanting to find out and suddenly thinking about what are all the tools and methods that I can use to access and get more data. And what I'm trying to figure out about these kelp forests, if they are shallow communities, shallow shallow kelp communities, which most kelp forests are because they need light and they should be more shallow, that have migrated into these deep water spots where there's just about enough light because things have gotten too warm Mm -hmm. and maybe these are the last pockets of tropical kelp forests that are able to survive in these few deep water spots where there's just enough light so maybe these are what we call remnants the last remnants from a species that might be uh, at the end of being able to tolerate the warm seas that we are Mm -hmm. in now Mm -hmm. or they're just well adapted mesophotic kelp forests so maybe instead of being the last remnants maybe we just don't know it but there's just heaps of kelp forests at deep water and that's because we don't know anything about what's going on in deeper water so maybe maybe the last remnants maybe an an abundant and very important ecosystem and one of the reasons contributing to why Galapagos is so special because you have kelp forests and kelp forests are known for being ecosystems that have that support myriads of life so they are just like trees on land yeah they are the trees underwater and if you have trees you have a forest and if you have forest you have a rich ecosystem full of life the same is underwater if you have kelp if you have lots of kelp you have a marine forest and if you have a marine forest you've got a bounty of life and primary production that is probably supporting life in deeper water and yeah so i just want to i'm trying to find out about their resilience in a in a time where we have a warming ocean and i'm really interested in learning about if we have this phenomena called a deep water uh, refuge hypothesis which is that maybe as water gets colder with depth uh, maybe if we right currently with climate change and marine heat waves becoming more abundant that are killing coral reefs globally and they're changing our coastal ecosystems globally. Maybe we, maybe there is in slightly deeper waters where temperatures are not getting that warm. Maybe this is a place where a lot of species can survive because they're buffered by it being cooler. Mm-hmm. Now, what is interesting here is because conditions are different as you go deeper, maybe your community is also different. So maybe it's not a refuge if your community is distinctly different to the community above. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. or in the shallow water. But that's kind of what we're finding out. We know so little about what's going on in the mesophotic depth zones that we just need to survey and explore and describe and compare and assess and see what we have down here and what role is it playing in making our ocean coastal communities more resilient. And that's where my um, PhD is, and that is what I am currently doing. <laughs> that's so exciting. But it's also quite um, nerve-wracking to hear that so many things can change on a global level because of climate change, beyond what happens on land, but also in the ocean. So, um, I mean, I'm hoping that you can share with our audience something that we might be able to do on an individual level, because, I mean, we can't necessarily prevent oil spills and things like that on an individual level, but can we do things to prevent really horrible things from happening within the ocean and within water ecosystems? Yeah, I. depending on the day, I feel like our individual efforts are maybe not enough, but then I do think, obviously, if we all changed at the same time, it is mm. totally enough, and I think what my two cents for that is that it's where we put our dollars and if I, I I would like I would like everyone who likes the ocean and wants to do more for the ocean and is aware that we're destroying it I think think about the ocean resources you use and most of us if you eat fish think about the fish that you're consuming how is it fished and the rate the the fishing that we're doing is causing so much damage and change and that's because industrial fishing is just absolutely terrible like there are these huge nets that are catching huge amounts tonnages of fish indiscriminately out of which they only really want to target maybe 10 percent of what they're catching literally every five years that i go to a fish market the fish that is being sold is a different species and that's because we're literally fishing down the food web and if you are in a place where you can buy sustainable, sustainably catched food, or if, if you can find a certificate that shows that um, your fish comes from small-scale fisheries, that is a way to make a difference. Because it's it's a double whammy. It's like uh, industrial fishing is bad for the ocean, but it's also bad for jobs, and it's bad for people. Because mm-hmm. industrial fishing usually... A very a company's making most of the money, and it doesn't hire as many people. Small scale fisheries hire more people; is more artisanal. It hires more uh, poor people from com- from coastal communities, especially in the less economically developed parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And industrial fishing is killing fish stocks that now these fishermen can't and fisherwomen cannot fish anymore. So it's just. It's bad in every way, so I think it's it is really important. It doesn't matter what fish you're buying, and and I think we need to have more conscious and think about more about the fish we eat. And I only want to ca- eat fish that has been caught at a small scale, but also I only want to eat fish that are uh, low on the food web. So mm-hmm. you don't want to eat the fish that are equivalent to tigers and lions or wolves. You don't want it, and that's usually the big fish. You want to eat the small fish. Uh, or or uh, usually um, mussels and oysters. That's great. They're like filter feeders. They reproduce fast. And I spend so much time underwater. And fish are a hundred percent sentient beings. With and I've dealt with. I've seen fish of the same species, and one doesn't behave like the other. They have personality. They're curious. Uh, some come even and interact with you as a as a diver. And it's just yeah. I and this is why I want everyone to 
make the ocean their playground, their respectful playground, because mm -hmm. I think those interactions with seeing the organisms will make you a more conscientious consumer of marine resources.